This is IAQ Radio, Indoor Air Quality Radio, the voice of the indoor air quality industry, with your hosts, Radio Joe Hughes and the Z-Man, Cliff Zlotnick. And now, Radio Joe Hughes. Good day and welcome to IAQ Radio Plus. This week is episode, where are we here anyway, Cliff, 530 or 638, my goodness. We welcome back Paula Schenk from the University of Connecticut. We're going to talk about health and safety during the COVID pandemic. We're going to talk a little bit about risk communication and also what MDs learn about mold and indoor air quality, plus a few other current events. It'll be a great show. Looking forward to it. Before we get started, let's thank our sponsors. They are the reason we can continue doing the show. Our marquee sponsor is Instascope at instascope.co. Our association sponsors are the American Industrial Hygiene Association, AIHA.org, the American Conference of Governmental Industrial Hygienists, ACGIH.org, the Cleaning Industry Research Institute, CIRIScience.org, the Indoor Air Quality Association, IAQA.org, the Restoration Industry Association, RestorationIndustry.org, the Institute for Inspection, Cleaning, and Restoration Certification, IICRC.org. Healthy Buildings America 2021, HB2021-America.org. Industry sponsors are AEML Laboratories, AEMLINC.com. Particles Plus, ParticlesPlus.com. Gray Wolf Sensing Solutions, GrayWolfSensing.com. TSI Inc. TSI.com. Sunbelt Rentals. Sunbeltrentals.com. April Air. April AIRE.com. Healthy Indoors Magazine. HealthyIndoors.com. And now you can win a cool prize. It's time for the IAQ Radio Trivia Question. Be the first to correctly answer. Simply email your answer to czlotnick at cs.com. Or if listening live, just text your answer from your computer. And now, here's the Z-Man. Hello, everyone. Congratulations go out to Jack Springston, Atlas Technical in New York City, who was first to identify NIDS, National Institute of Building Science, as the building-related, nonprofit, non-governmental organization established by the U.S. Congress in the Housing and Community Development Act of 1974, Public Law 93-383. The IEQ Radio Trivia question for today, September 17, 2021, has been sponsored by TSI Inc., an industry leader in precision instrumentation for the monitoring of indoor air. Learn how to expand your IEQ investigations at TSI.com. Here's today's IEQ Radio Trivia question. What violation is most commonly cited by OSHA? Back to you, Joe. All right, this week we welcome Paula Shank. She's got a master's in public health and is a rehired retiree that advises physicians about environmental contributors to illness and also is an advisor to the Connecticut Small Business Development Center as what could be described as their COVID health and safety person. She works with small businesses trying to establish appropriate procedures and responses to COVID. She was a part of a group that established the Center for Indoor Environments and Health at UConn, and she developed multiple initiatives directed at improving indoor environments in schools and offices. Welcome to the show, Paula. It's a pleasure to be here. 
It's great to have you back. Uh, although this time you got, we got you solo. I'm looking forward Uh-oh. to a great show. <laughs> All right, let's let's talk a little bit about uh, the first. Let's talk a little bit about the the CSBDC, the Connecticut Small Business Development Center. Um, what's your role there, and and what is the Small Business Development Center? Sure. Can I have my slides? Sure. Let's go to number one, John. How about number two? Better yet. <laughs> First of all, just to clarify, I am a rehired retiree. I retired a few years ago, and I did a lot of different things at UConn's Division of Occupational Environmental Medicine. But what's really important is they kept me on to help them, to advise them in our clinic on environmental exposures outside the workplace. So that's my main focus and my main work at this point in time. Next slide. But I've had the most interesting gig of all, a part-time gig the last couple of years, with the um, Connecticut Small Business Development Center, which is housed within UConn itself as well. And this is from their website. And I think to understand what they do is that they provide advice to small businesses for free on the whole range of issues that small business face. Next slide. So when they first contacted me, my first challenge, which is still a challenge for every, everyone and every one of you who are in business, is to sort through all the messaging, all the information, all the various perspectives on COVID. So the very first thing I did is I may know health and safety fairly well. I may understand the clinical setting, although I'm not a clinician, I need to make that very clear and I rely for clinical information from others, but I needed to see what was the science-based background in health and safety. So what this slide tells you is what I did. And importantly, I took the ACGIH course immediately. It was a 12 session course and it really underlined knowledge I had, but really applied it quite well. ASHRAE I've put up there three times. I rely on what ASHRAE publishes. I find it to be separate from the political influences. Connecticut and CDC guidance was real important because that's what small business cared about. So that's really what I needed to look at. And the other, the only other things I want to mention are my go-tos. And besides the IAQ leaders, many of which you've had, Joe Listebrook certainly last week was um, interesting to say the least, as he always (laughs) is. But I relied on a clinical way with occupational epidemiology medical experts at UConn. I was very fortunate to have them to rely on. Next slide. Before we move on, the the ACGIH course, was that their industrial ventilation course? They did a special 12-session course focused on COVID. Oh, okay. it, It had sessions on ventilation. It had sessions on PPE. It was very well done. As I say, it was a great refresher for my basic knowledge. And then it, it was a good thing for me to do to be well-versed. Again, the message is 
go to the experts that are vetted to okay. get your knowledge. Let's go to this one. So what is a pandemic, I guess? And what I've listed here is the language that epidemiologists talk about in a pandemic. And as you'll see, the language has very little to do with the language that small business looks to. I see. And I think it's really important that little picture I put up there is small business was faced with business challenges where health and safety and some of the realities of COVID were really hard to integrate into all these other challenges. And clearly the funds that were available were helpful. What was so complicated for them was they looked to OSHA to want to be in compliance anyway, but they didn't really understand that health and safety with COVID is not about compliance. So my task was to help give the small business center the tools they needed. So when they advised their clients, they would have tools to help advise them. But I think it's important to basically understand the language is so different. The perspective is so different. Next slide. Very interesting. You know, when you say that they're more concerned with compliance, I, I think that's an important point because, as you said, you know, there, there's no set of rules to comply with, essentially. It's a bunch of guidance. And the bunch of gu which guidances do they look to? Right. And let's right. face it, we're going to talk about it later. There's been so much misinformation that it's made the messaging from who has, who is founded in science hard to integrate into a business model. Okay. Um, uh, the first thing that they had me do, they had hired for this last summer, not this past summer, a bunch of very bright, interesting business students and said, let's come up with what in health and safety our clients will need. And so honestly, a lot of my task in coordinating with them, and they had a great advisor coordinating them, was education. Because they weren't too far removed from what I just described the small business was. But they were bright, they looked to good resources, and developed, um, with some help from me, this guidance document, which was a question and answer format. But my message to them and throughout all the work with them was in business, let's start looking at health and safety as a differentiator in your business model. I still believe small business has an opportunity to differentiate themselves among their competitors with COVID and health and safety. And the other message, and you're gonna hear it the whole time we talk, Joe, is that the key to success is open discussion with everybody, management and workers. Interesting. Let's go to the next one, John. So this was just, I did some webinars for them. The first one was focused on restaurants, and we're going to talk a little bit more about essential workers and some of their challenges. And the next slide. This was a second one I did that was as things started to move and they and different states came up with, okay, we've closed down now, it's okay to work indoors. 
And this is the stuff that you, Joe, and your group and people that listen to this program, this is where indoor air quality became such an important focus. I bet. And the yeah, with the, okay, go ahead. Let's go to the next one. I want to get through these before we get into too much more questioning. Okay. And the challenge, the, oh, we're getting questions. Good. Um, the challenge is really in terms of the small business development, I was still doing my regular job was the same glitches and problems that I'm going to say are hard as we move forward in any industry. And we, this issue of everybody working remote was really complex because we had Yukon stores, we had the Connecticut, the, the business center, which is headquartered in East Hartford, but everybody was working out of their homes. We had me at the Division of Occupational Environmental Medicine and my HR and my management, and I work in a hybrid model. I go in when I see clinic patients, but other than that, I work home. That complicated everything. Hmm. Again, this message that's really, uh, I, I hope I don't bore people, but the messaging on the SARS-2 virus and the COVID illness is very confusing. Risk communication was complicated. And the long-term survival of these business entities is a, the biggest concern of the center and certainly a concern that I espouse. We need to be safe, we need to go on, but we need to keep our businesses working. And clearly occupational health, and this is, you put anyone on your show that in occupational health and talking about health and safety, and they'll, they'll go back to you how it is. Is it just a sidecar in your business? And I'd love to talk to some of the people on the radio with us who are in business, or is it something that you espouse and put into your program? Interesting. Okay, let's go to the next one, John. You had asked me to make sure I talk about what we did right. Yes. So clearly... The advances, what we've learned. And does, do people know what SARS stands for? It's severe acute respiratory syndrome. And the particular virus that causes COVID is, num is numbered SARS-2. So we have learned in the last couple of years so much more about these types of viruses. We've learned about other challenges in infectious disease including what does being prepared mean? And it means a lot more than what we thought it meant. And we as the general public health community. Okay, that's very, what I was going Very importantly, the technology in development, the RNA vaccine technology has been in development for years and years. And now it's proven. You know, the two vaccines that we are relying on that rely on that technology, we know is protective against severe illness in most of the population. That is a tremendous step forward. Personal okay. responsibility counts. Certainly we've learned that. And we're gonna talk, I think more about vaccination uh, later on, but clearly, this whole concept of herd immunity, you know, you learn it in your first course in public health. 
And you say, okay, it's when most of the people are vaccinated, so there's less virus in the community, and you get to a point where there's not enough dose of that virus to infect people because of the large amount of vaccination. Well, that sounds great, but we've really learned, at least in terms of COVID, what it means and what it doesn't mean. The personal response counts. Hazard control measures, they work when done correctly. However, there's lots of things acting against them um, happening correctly. And clearly, I think there is more of an appreciation, maybe not with everybody, and that's my problem and your problem in the occupational medicine field, but IAQ is likely considered more important to uh, businesses today than it ever was. We've also learned some great things about the assigned roles of government. And unfortunately, here's my other message. The inconsistent messaging has unfortunately given us the lesson how important the roles of government are. Some states have done it well, some states have done it not so well. And, and what about the federal government? How do you feel the federal government's done on that? I think it's been mixed, Joe. You know, I don't want to get into different political viewpoints just to say that politics and response to public health politics doesn't belong there. And I think some of the messaging has reflected um, too much of political viewpoint. I will say as a long-term research contractor with EPA, with NIOSH, which is CDC, we all have to acknowledge where money comes from. And we all have to acknowledge important roles. And you can do that in a way that you don't have to put public health upside down. And I think what's unfortunately has happened around COVID over the last few years is that that political reality of what are the consequences of this public health message has taken too much importance. I think you know, I want to go back to how it was. Let me get your thoughts on this. I, I feel like early on, we made the mistake of, of kind of uh, letting the public think that science was definitive and never changing. And I think that hurt us more than almost anything else we've done. I wonder what you think on that. Absolutely. And a great example, and I'm a fan of Dr. Fauci, but a great example is early on when the message was that if you're not in direct health care, you may not need a mask. That message should have been given with the caveat, we don't know everything about this virus yet. Exactly. And right now, we know enough to know we've got to prioritize our healthcare workers. That would have been a better message because then there's all the backpedaling when we learned more. And the issue of masks and masks protecting and why they protect, I have a slide later on to talk a little bit about that because of this. And I think that that's a perfect, you are so astute when you say we need to, it's at the, my last slide, I think I wrote down, 
is we need to be honest about the science. And, and it will change. It, it will continue to change. And, and that doesn't mean that, that we were lying to you in the first place or we were hiding something. Right. It changes. Right. Okay. Could you please advise the CDC? <laughs> would you like to work for the CDC? I think that would be a good message for CDC to hear. I hear you. Thank you, Paul. All right, John, let's go back. I didn't mean to deviate too much from where we are, but I think that's an important message. All and right. by the way, please deviate. And if questions come up from the chat, I, I'm happy to be um, interrupted. Great. So COVID from an occupational medicine perspective, and I put the blue heart there. I don't know about you. There's one on my front porch. The healthcare industry made such sacrifices and worked so hard because the health threat was so real. And I don't think today people still appreciate that. And some of the issues in occupational medicine, remember occupational medicine, healthcare workers were concerned about protecting them from the hazards. So clearly we all know about the lack of PPE, personal protective equipment initially. I know in my world in Connecticut, um, N95s are available, but I also know that some hospitals are still requiring multi-use and um, uh, N95s are really designed for single use. And you've had better speakers and more knowledgeable speakers speak about that. Um, it's not just the availability, but it's how they use them. We certainly have had patients in our clinics who have reacted to the mask wearing, all kinds of masks, different gloves. One thing that our clinic does, our industrial hygienist, we've got a, a great industrial hygienist I work with, Paul Bureau. He meets with the individuals and he'll suggest either alternative types of PPE or using barrier creams. And our physicians continue to see the individuals to make sure that the interventions are appropriate. Probably one of the biggest outcomes to our healthcare has been the stress. In terms of their mental health, there is a much increased need for um, counseling and it comes from staff doing so many extra hours because of staff called off either because they're quarantined because they've been exposed. Um, they've had exposures themselves. I'll tell you a little funny story about exposure and me. As I said, I've been going into the clinic when it's patient day. And I also meet with our residents um, and do a little bit of training on public health background to occupational medicine. And during the height of the past surge, the doc I work for said, you stay home, we'll do telemed with you because of my age. And I appreciate that. But when the lull went down, I really like seeing patients. So I came back in and I had a session with a couple of residents that went really well. And one of the residents was interested in meeting with me a couple of days later for another session to talk about specifically 
indoor air quality, mold, and respiratory disease. Hmm. So I was planning on going back in on Friday. That was a Wednesday. I talked to the director of the clinic, Dr. Moore, on Thursday, and he said, Paula, Dr. So-and-so is now in quarantine. I said, what? He said, he said he's not going to meet with you. That fortunately, it happened after I met with him, so I didn't have to go into quarantine on Wednesday. But he was at not our hospital, one of the other hospitals in the system, and had to administer to a patient who then tested positive. So he didn't have COVID, it ended up, but he had to do quarantine. So that's just an example. And I'm not a direct care provider. How right. so much stress on those health providers. And then the non-essential workers, which is, was the other side, they the challenges there are disinfection practices. And we're going to talk about one with bus drivers where they were disinfecting in such a way and that the residual chemical on that bus was creating health effects for them. And the unexpected consequences of working at home. Well, if you go to the next slide, the oh, muscular okay. skeletal problems, and I've included this link to a little bit of help that our economist, um, Mr. Vergesi, uh, put up on our website early because there was such a requirement for how do I better set up my office. Interesting. Hey, Paul, before we go on, I, I got a quick question for you. Uh, with respect to, you know, PPE, masks, gloves, etc., um, are you seeing health effects in the personnel working, you know, the, the, the clinicians, the nurses, et cetera, or are you seeing more in, in, um, in, in the public? It's mostly been in the healthcare workers that we've seen, but it's very interesting because the patients who come in, who aren't healthcare workers, who might be a machinist or a different professional, that the issue with the masks often are if they're in an environment where it's hot and they're sweating. And then the advice to them is not so much different masks, but I'll try to talk to him about taking mask breaks, which is one of the messages I give the restaurateurs in terms of their um, kitchen staff. Mm -hmm. They need to have a program where the kitchen staff can go out and take a mask break when right now masks are required for everybody indoors with the current surge, but at times they weren't required. Okay. So we do see it, but we tend it tends to be the healthcare workers where it's on so much. And if they have a reaction to the material. And this is normally, I would imagine, skin uh, irritation, things of that sort, or do you? Sometimes it's respiratory, because sometimes okay. the reaction isn't just irritant, but it's allergic. And then that can, you can have respiratory illness from that. Uh, what about like infections from not cleaning their mask, or, you know, especially the cloth ones or reusing masks? Do you see much of that? I personally have not had any complaints from patients in terms of cleaning their mask. 
I will say I have, let's say, nicely told them when they've come in. Although by the time I see them, they're supposed to be wearing one of the masks that they've gotten at the door to come into Yukon. I so see. they're off, they're most often wearing the procedure mask. But when they wear the cloth mask, in general, in just talking with them, I'll say, you know, you gotta, you know, wash those frequently. There's good mask etiquette on the government sites to look at, that kind of thing. Okay, let's try and squeeze in one more slide before halftime here, John. Okay. Actually, actually, that we can. This one slide, the point here is very important that businesses need to understand that people coming into their business are the sources. So, spraying a disinfectant is not gonna take care of making that place safe. And Cliff has a follow-up question for you here before we go to halftime, Paula. Yeah, Paula, um, yeah, kind of a personal question. My, my, my wife's in the jewelry business and one of the things that she did is she got for her staff and also for customers that they would come in that didn't have a mask, uh, you know, we would, we would provide them with one. And she bought these masks and they were a black color for some reason. And one day I went there and I put one of these things on and I reacted immediately. I don't know if it's the dye or it's the material. And my reaction was exactly what you said, not skin, but respiratory. So, and I don't know whether it was a color thing with the mask or, or what, but have, have you encountered anything like that? Uh, not in terms of patients I've seen. Right. But I certainly uh, can appreciate, and it could have been the dye that was used for the color. It could have been a powder in the packing. Mm -hmm. It could have been that some of those masks use different plastic materials, even though they look like they're cloth. Mm -hmm. And I don't want to ask you, I won't talk about personal um, medical no, things no, on air, but you and I can talk I, separately after the thing if you want. Yeah, I have I some other thoughts that I would ask you if you would come into our clinic. No problem. And we've got a quick comment from our audience. Derek Denae says, uh, skin breakdown has been significant for our clients with friction, pressure, retained humidity, and retained heat. That breakdown is for both masks and for respirators. So I think it's pretty common out there. Uh, and I would imagine that kids in schools, do you deal much with the, the schools, Paula? I always, schools are one area that I focus on, have always focused on. So yes. And um, we have, we're a, an adult clinic. So in schools, we tend to see the staff, but often the kids are involved. And I have had a specific instance in a school district where um, a particular child, her parents took her out of her classroom because she reacted to the cleaning really. And I do want to talk a little bit about that. Electrostatic spraying of cleaning solutions is a great thing because it covers the surface, but it's only great if you really wipe it totally off after the required dwell time. Because all those cleaning chemicals can be irritating and maybe even to some people allergic. So you can't leave them. And in this particular, situation. It was a situation where I was working with an individual and 
they were so so happy that they were doing more than they were supposed to do to clean everything. But there really wasn't time for them to really wipe everything down well enough after they clean it. And so my advice is, do you really need those strong chemicals? And the first thing we tried to do was get them to use different cleaners, which would be just as effective. And also to understand if they're going to use, you know, I, I prefer the spray bottles and the individual people wiping it down. But if they were going to use the big electrostatic sprayers, they had to use them according to directions. Cliff, do you have a follow-up? Yeah, I, I did. I think going back to the masks again, I, I think that, you know, what happens is some people breathe out of their nose, some people breathe out of their ma- mouths, and then certain people that breathe out of their noses, when they start getting out of breath, they start kind of breathing out of their mouths and so on and so forth. And I suspect that whatever, that that, that makes a difference uh, when you're wearing the mask. Have you noticed anything or not? I Actually, you know, that's very individual, Cliff, and it may make a difference to individuals. But if you're having truly an allergic reaction, it might just be the exposure through your skin. And you can still have a respiratory effect. No, no, I I meant in terms of getting kind of out of breath or or having difficulty breathing through the mask is what I meant. Well, I, I think people do. I know myself. I do that. I start breathing out of my mouth sometimes when it's when I'm wearing a tight mask. And that's why my guidance is more go outside in an open area and have a mask break. Yeah. We're going to stop and thank our sponsors here real quick. We'll be back in. I got it down to two and a half minutes here with Paula Shank. Thank you, Paul. Our marquee sponsor, Instascope. More jobs done faster with the future of IAQ assessment technology, unlimited samples, instant results, and cloud-based data at instascope.co. Association sponsors are AIHA, Healthy Workplaces, A Healthier World, AIHA.org, ACGIH, Advancing Careers of Professionals in Environmental Health, Industrial Hygiene, and Safety, Interested in Defining Their Science, ACGIH.org, The Cleaning Industry Research Institute, See More Deeply Through Science and Research, CIRI science.org the indoor air quality association iaqa.org the restoration industry association the granddaddy of the restoration industry restorationindustry.org the iicrc a non-profit standards development and certifying body for the cleaning and restoration industry iicrc.org healthy buildings america Honolulu, Hawaii, January 18 through 20, 2022. HB2021-America.org. Industry sponsors are AEML Laboratories. Free shipping, great pricing, same-day results with no rush fee. AEMLINC.com. Particles Plus. Feature-rich particle counters and air quality instrumentation. Count on us. Particles Plus. Gray Wolf Sensing Solutions, over 20 years manufacturing accurate, reliable IAQ instrumentation for portable, short-term, and continuous monitoring. GrayWolfSensing.com. TSI Inc., an industry leader in precision instrumentation for monitoring indoor air. 
Learn how to expand your IAQ investigations, TSI.com. Sunbelt Rentals, availability, reliability, and ease for all your IAQ and restoration needs at sunbeltrentals.com. April Air, healthy air, healthy home, aprilaire.com. And Healthy Indoors Magazine, a free online magazine for industry professionals and consumers, healthyindoors.com. All right, we're back with the second half of our interview. We've got Paula Shank on from the University of Connecticut. And let's get back to that uh, to the slides, John. I want to see if we can get through these last 10 slides here and then, then go into more free-for-all. All right, Paula. So without going into any details, recognize that sources are people, and that's not just your staff. That's customers and visitors. So you may need policies that keep, when they're in your establishment, not only keep them safe, but keep you safe. Next okay. slide. But we're going to go pretty fast through these. All right. All right. Um, <clears throat> again, I have to make my pitch for vaccination that it's not only in terms of you do not become bu- bulletproof, by the way, when you get vaccinated. You still you, you're you're safe against serious illness but you still can be a carrier and you still can get more mild illness. Next slide. This is the standard um, NIOSH hierarchy of controls. Really quickly, I use it when I talk to small business, when I talk to healthcare workers, and generally, uh, in addition to you can't eliminate the virus, there's other things you can do. Next slide. We're going to go real fast. Engineering, con- engineering controls, ventilation, things like that. Administrative controls, policy, communication, cleaning protocols. Do it right. Do it right. And then clearly prote- personal protective equipment. Next slide. Paul, before we go, I got a quick one on this one. You, sure. you have add a barrier. Um at right. a clear barrier, and that, there's been controversy over that. I wonder if you could touch on that for a moment. That's a great question. The controversy, and again, this is where messaging is confusing. The controversy came when CDC acknowledged what so many of the speakers you were speaking about last year, you had on your show, and things like aerosols and attention to ventilation may be even more important than blo- than droplet transmission. And I didn't talk about that with that first slide. I want to go fairly quickly through these. But the reason for barriers and the reason why they were recommended so much in the beginning was because the assumption was CDC's recommendation that droplet transmission was the major transmission. So a barrier in front of a hostess stand or in front of a checkout person in a supermarket would block if somebody sneezed right there. Okay. So I have left this on the slide because we still, and again, this is where we don't know everything. I think we know aerosols are primary in indoor environments now. But what we don't know is droplets still have a high dose of that virus. Yeah, And especially with something like Delta, if somebody sneezed in your face, 
and you were not vaccinated, I think there'd be a good likelihood you're going to get sick. So I think there still is a role for those barriers. As long as they're put, as long as you keep in mind the ventilation issue and, and exactly, exactly. And And that's why ventilation is the first thing on my list. Okay. Let's go to the next one, John. I'm not going to go through any of the details about this. You've had real ventilation experts on that have gone through this, but a basic understanding on how ventilation works. And the reason why it's so important is if you can't do what ASHRAE says, more outdoor air, um, filtration 13 MERV or better, what you do need to do is make sure the ventilation system you have is doing its job. And that's not a, oh, it helps. It works. I'm telling people all the time, make sure your filters fit. fit. Make sure your exhaust fans work. I don't mean you know, to get on my soapbox. Next. Ed Light, well, Ed Light will be standing up and cheering for you right now because i mean and i do too because i think the one all the terrible things that have occurred as the result of this pandemic one of the bright spots i think is that people are actually looking at their mechanical systems and maintaining them a little bit better and realizing how damn important they are so i just i'm so glad you brought that up all right next one this this is just basically I a lot of businesses rent, so they don't have a lot of control over their ventilation. So the message here is talk to Bill, again, this open dialogue. And then of course, ASHRAE's resources. Have your open dialogue with ASHRAE in your back pocket. Okay. Next slide. And again, I'm not gonna go into any of these details except the last bullet, because you have other people have dealt with this. And when Joe Lashebrook was saying, we're saying open, bring up all this outside air. Well, what about all the humidity you're bringing in? And I do add that to my message. Controlling the humidity is really important. We can't forget the biological soup that humidity allows to grow in buildings. Well said. Next slide. Again. If you can't do it, many, many systems can't take a MERV 13. You got a MERV 8, make sure it fits right. Make sure it's changed often enough. Next slide. I, I'm not going to talk at all about this. You had a, an expert talk about it, but these units, the HEPA units can help, but they have to be done right. Next slide. Okay. This is my big caution. One thing that happened is small business got inundated by vendors who want them to use all kinds of technologies that may kill viruses, that may work, but they're not appropriate in general indoor environments. And even UV, which is good, which works, hospitals have used it for years, has to be done properly. So my caution about other technologies is don't do it without the real expert in your corner. Wasn't there a school district up in Connecticut that bought a bunch of these bipolar ionization units or was that, maybe I missed that or maybe I have the wrong location. I don't know. 
I can't okay. comment about that, Joe. Let's go to the next one, John. Right. So moving ahead in terms of business, because staff has been so limited, I think part of the new normal isn't just we're going to have to deal with infectious illness, but the value of having workers, having workers that work with you, the vaccination and testing policies, you know, and if we listen to President Biden, I thought his message last week was excellent. And we don't know exactly what the vaccination and testing policies are going to be until CDC comes out with guidance. But many states are moving ahead. Health and safety. I'm a fan of health and safety committees. They're required in Connecticut for businesses over 25 people. That helps the dialogue. Improve your, bio, your ventilation. More awareness of infectious disease. Generally, we've got to be aware of that. And in terms of the economic reality that I started this whole session with, Joe, let's be real about it. And it's mixed in Connecticut for the long-term outlook. I'm sure it's mixed in Maine and other places. And I think I have one more slide. Go ahead, Joe. Consequences, positive and negative. I think I've hit on almost all of these, so I'm not going to list them, but keep those all in mind. There are positive aspects to what happened with COVID, and there's also some negative things that we need to do better. Next Paula, how are, how are schools doing so far? Oh, this is an important one here. Let's go to the risk communication first. Boy, this is hard, Joe. You know, I used to say that I could help schools with risk communication. It was one of the things I did, and I still offer. But boy, is it hard. Yeah. Um, because of what we talked about, about people having perspectives with prejudices and putting that into the scientific messages, it's so hard. I've always heard about it by mold, whether it's patients coming in or whether it's schools, there's so much misinformation on the internet. What does it mean? Um, that to rely on just the vetted knowledge, it's hard for somebody who isn't in our field to decide what's vetted and what's not. So in risk communication, acknowledge that there, that information is out there. Acknowledge there are prejudices. Your message about transparency early in our talk today is, is really the bottom line. We don't know everything. Acknowledge it. That's Rule number one in risk communication, focus on the positives, but don't ignore what isn't so positive. And I think for businesses, make compliance reasonably easy. And I'll go back to my example of mask breaks. Let your staff add mask breaks. If you have a retail store, keep your um, senses down of people in a space. And by the way, businesses, advertise that you're making it safe for the people. Not a yeah. bad business thing. No, make sure you let people know we have it. You know, that's why, like I see this uh, well seal nowadays. They, they put out, a, they're doing a lot of marketing, a lot of advertising. And there are many of these programs for your building. But um, I wonder what your thoughts are on those kind of programs. You know, it's funny. We've had a... Um, it was actually a M 
MPH student many years ago, maybe 20 years ago at UConn, for his thesis, worked out this program for restaurants for safety and ABC evaluation because sanitarians have to go in and evaluate periodically. I'm sure it's true in every state. And that has become incredibly um, successful because restaurants want that A. So they self-police so well. But this is something that they know they have to be inspected by the local health department so it works. So something having to do with COVID would need the same kind of enforcement teeth behind it. It would need either the local health or somebody who would say, yes, your health and safety program, it couldn't just be a checklist. They file their checklist and somebody uh, looks at the checklist, said, yes, they're doing everything we've asked them, let's give them the seal. So the idea of a seal is great, but it needs to have teeth behind it. Okay. My opinion. And, the, and I, I should say, everything I've said today is my opinion, maybe based on what I do at UConn, but please understand you're talking to me. <laughs> I got you. I got you, Paula. What about things that have not worked as well as expected. I know you mentioned a couple with the cleaning in particular. I think that's the biggest one. Are there any others you can think of? Um, I think, you know, some of the what mask do you wear? When do you wear it? How do you keep it clean? That initially we didn't really know. And I think that the messages and the things that came out was de dealt with what we thought was okay. Like is a mask, like a procedure mask. I reuse my mask in that I get into Yukon, I have a procedure mask on, you know, one of the uh, surgical normal main masks. And, but I don't use it again once I've been in the clinic. All right. If I've just been in my office and I've worn it to walk into my office, I'll then use it again, walking out, walking into my car. I may even use it if I'm going to stop at a supermarket on the way home. So my personal opinion, I can reuse it with judgment. Gotcha. That's a good point. I also wonder what your thoughts are on, um, People who have had COVID develop some type of, uh, you know, some type, I don't know how good it is, but some type of, I don't want to call it immunity, but, you know, they're, they're, they're a little better protected. I'm just, I just read today that that along with a, a shot or vaccination can really increase people's protection. Have you seen anything along those lines? Let me make the caveat that when I'm asked specifically about vaccination, I do rely on our epidemiologist. So answering as a lay person, what I've read, and I do read the vetted literature, does seem to say very strongly that if you've had COVID, your doctor, and again, um, Cliff, something you said earlier, do what your doctor says about getting the shot. You, individually, everybody, you all have your own health status. But generally what I've read in the literature is that indeed, whether you get it 
when your doctor says get it a week later, two weeks later, two months later, whatever your doctor says, it does make your response more robust. And that's also true about the boosters. What's confusing about the boosters is that when they say that response wanes, I read something recently, you know, they're saying eight months. It makes me nervous. I'm in my eighth month. Yeah. Um, or six months down the road. But what the messaging isn't clear about, I am still really well protected against serious disease. And my personal health status, I'm probably very protected. Maybe not so if my health status was different. So I think we have to be really careful about those generalities, like you need a booster after so many months. Those are public health determinations based on protection of a reasonable amount of the group of people. And again, this is Paula talking, not an, ep uh, an epidemiologist. I would call up Dr. David Bannock at UConn and say, David, I've gotten these questions. Am I, is this correct? Gotcha. Cliff, do you have a follow-up? Yeah, you know, it, it, there's a study, and I think Israel's, you know, kind of led the world in, in, in a lot of these studies. And they've come up with something recently about uh, a comparison between people that had COVID without vaccination and that their protection was somewhere between 10 and 13 times better than the protection provided by the vaccination. So it seems that people have gotten it already. Uh, so when you hear that, you wonder if someone's got 10 to 13 times more protection, why does that particular person you know, need a vaccination if they already have it? And uh, so I just wondered, it, it, you know, what Paula's opinion might be, uh, you know, on that. If you've already had it, um, would you still vaccinate or not? Okay, or? here's Paula's opinion of a reader of research and a little bit understanding the literature. And I need to look at that particular study. But that's the results of a study. All right. So when they say they had... Um, so much percent more protection if they had the disease rather than didn't. That was that study, and you don't know what the other variables were. Whether it's truly generalizable to you and me and the overall population. And that's why risk communication is so tough, because people hear the headlines of that study and they say, okay, I don't, I'm afraid of the vaccine. I don't think I need it. And then there's the other study that Joe talked about, that if you get vaccinated after, um, after you've had it, you get so much more protection. So here are two studies, one that argues, oh, you're protected, and one that argues you're really going to be protected. And so the messaging about that needs to take into, into account the individual studies. I don't know if I've read the particular one, Cliff, you're talking about. But my read from what you said is that I would say that there's variables there that we need to look at. And I would not say it's for all of us. From what, from what I remember, it was a big study, like 750,000 people or whatever, uh, you know, were actually studied. So it's a huge study. And it came out, I don't know, a couple of weeks ago, I happened to be watching television and it came out. And, it, you know, it's just one of those things that, 
sure. you know, I, it's it, the, the science changes every day. And, and uh, sure. how are they measuring? Um, was it were they actually measuring antibodies in that amount of people? Yeah, that, I believe I believe that's what they found that the antibodies were ten to uh, thirteen times greater um, amounts of them, and I, that you know so. Uh, you know, they, it, it was, uh, yeah, it was pretty interesting. So, um, Hey, I, uh, I got booted off for a minute there. So I'm glad you two kept talking. Apparently that's good news. Um, we, we were arguing Joe is John and I are back. <laughs> Let's go to the roundup. And wrap for me. The scientific method. That's right. There you go. Let's go to the roundup and then we'll fi- we'll finish things up. The Roundup is brought to you by April Air, providing healthy humidity, ventilation, and air purity solutions for new and existing homes. April Air, healthy air, healthy home at aprilaire.com. All right. I uh, first want to apologize to listeners. We're not going to get a chance to talk as much as I would like to about uh, the training of physicians on IAQ and environmental things, but I'm, I'm hoping, Paula, you will come back and we can do a show on that uh, in the not-too-distant future. We can, as long as it's not after Yom Kippur again. You got it. <laughs> <laughs> All right. My final question is um, schools. They're back, and kids 12 and under can't get vaccinated. First of all, how are things going in Connecticut? Um, are a lot of kids coming down with COVID? Are they closing schools like I hear of in other states or are things going well? And um, what are your thoughts on how how schools should proceed with respect to, uh, you know, kids that are not able to be vaccinated? I think Connecticut's doing a good job. I personally don't know of big super spreader events at any school. Of course, they've only been in school a couple of weeks and not even full time. But I will say that the guidances that I have looked at at a few school districts are really good and really take into account the vulnerability of these kids. And I think it will be very helpful when vaccination and or testing as the alternative if you won't be vaccinated for all all adults that interact with these kids, um, wearing masks, the kids seem more resilient about wearing masks than we oldies are. Um, I know from personal experience, kids in my life, wearing masks is second nature. And Cliff, any final thoughts, questions? No, I just want to compliment you on your open-mindedness and, um, you know, looking at the research and, you know, what you've done for business, because I think it's, it's just confusing and, uh, you know, Joe and I as small business owners can, can relate to it and, and appreciate it because, you know, it's not like you have, uh, uh, you know, uh, you know, just uh, incredible amounts of money that you can react to this and do this and do that and, and so on and so forth. So it's got to be practical. And uh, I do believe it makes a difference. I try. My gig with the um, small business center is coming to an end, but you can still, you have all my contact information if questions come up, I'd be happy to talk to you, Cliff, and any of anybody, small, other small business folks. Thank you. There's probably a small business center in Maine as well. 
but you probably can get some free advice. Hey, Paul, before we go, I do want to get this final question. And I, I don't know if it, we have plenty of time, if you have time. Um, how has COVID affected progress on other IAQ issues you've been passionate about over the years? You know, you got the mold issue, the lead issue, the, all these other IAQ issues. It's been mixed, Joe, that in one way, the attention to the indoor environment and an acceptance that it affects health maybe is getting better. So that's a positive thing. But what I didn't, because it's really didn't have time, is the negative part is that infectious disease exposures are only part of the equation. And so some of the concern, you know, like tongue in cheek, we got to control humidity because of the biological soup, but that's real. There are other exposures that we need to be concerned with, with occupants in indoor environments. So it's a mixed, it's a mixed bag. More positive than negative, I think, you know, in my experience, but we're all learning. And, you know, I think the other thing is with these precautions we're taking and you, you know, you being close to the medical people probably know better than me. Like last year, the flu season was a big, no big deal. Um, Are we going to do better with preventing other types of illness because of the precautions we're taking with COVID? I think that there's sort of a general acceptance that people wearing masks, there'll be less transmission of all kinds of respiratory uh, bugs, if I can put it that way. And the reason why we had a low flu season is we all were staying home last winter. Yeah, that's wearing masks, Or a lot of us were, essential workers had to go out. Very good point. Yeah, I'm, I'm very hopeful that um, we'll see less, you know, fewer colds and, and with filtration, ventilation, distancing, masks, all that, that we'll see fewer colds, we'll see fewer flu, we'll see less, you know, strep throat, things of that nature. But I don't know. Uh, I guess we'll find out. Right. And if, if indeed the doctor tells you to have your flu shot, have your flu shot. Don't assume because we're wearing masks especially if you're of an age like me, of more vulnerability. I got mine, Paulo, yesterday, actually, the day before yesterday. So I'm uh, glad I did, too. Thank you, Paula Shank, for joining us. It's, it's great to have you. I'm going to call you or, or email you soon and, and set up another day when we can talk more about the type of education physicians get on indoor air quality, mold, et cetera. So um, I'm Love, looking forward that's to That's my favorite topic. Great. Well, we look forward to having you back. And uh, I want to thank you for joining us this week. I want to thank my co-host, the Z-Man, Cliff Zlotnick. John, you got to have faith at the controls, Um, our sponsors, and most importantly, our audience. We appreciate you coming back. Please come back next Friday at noon for the next episode of IAQ Radio Plus. For IAQ Radio, I'm Spike Reed saying thanks for listening. 